control your sins and pains, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law from day to night. All right. Good morning, Adventure Church. Um, I got the great joy of getting to speak to you guys last week, and now one of my closest friends is going to share with us this Sunday. So as Alfred, go ahead and come on up. Alfred Murillo, um, some of you guys have known him. He's uh, been a part of ministry here in Utah for many, many years. I mean, we go back probably, yeah, mid-90s. So we're super old. We go back over almost 25 years. I'm doing ministry together and uh, having a close friendship. And so we invited him in to share with you guys and, uh, and just bless us with, with his story. Um, and he's going to just really touch your hearts. He's, he's a, a gentleman that I've had speak at our youth camps many times just because he has a heart for teenagers. He ha- has a heart for everybody, but just a heart for our teenagers. Our teenagers relate well with him, and he shares his heart. So if you guys would just welcome Pastor Alfred Murillo this morning. It is a joy to be able to be with you. I um, want to say before anything, thank you so much for those of you that knew the battle that I went through last year and for your prayers. You see, it was that same day that your pastor, Pastor Chase, went into the hospital with COVID was the same day I went in as well. And we weren't together, okay? So I could have blamed you, but you could have blamed me. No, it... No, we weren't together, but you know, I've come to find out throughout this past year that there has been so many people, ministers, leaders in the churches that were hit on that same week. That came in, I really believe, as an attack from the enemy that just come in against the ministry. And it but here's the cool thing about it was that ministry didn't stop. God just continued. People picked up and were able to jump in and be involved and make the ministry that God had planned to continue. Now, in my situation, um, for those of you that don't know, as Chase mentioned, that I've been in ministry here since 94, uh, started off in working as a youth pastor, and then in 2000, wanted to see some more outreach happening more in the downtown area. So we launched out from being a youth pastor to see a ministry called the Utah Dream Center, and still running that as, now, as of now, a lot of people say, well, where's the center? Where's the building? We were using a church building. That building's no longer here, but we were always mobile. So a lot of people know us throughout the years as the Utah Dream Center. But we also had and ran with another uh, concept, another phrase. It was really a mindset of how we operated, and we called it synergy. Synergy in action. And the idea that we added action because how many times do you know you get together with somebody to say you're going to do something and then nothing happens? I said, we're not going to do that. If we're going to get together, something's going to happen. We're going to do something for the kingdom of God. And so we started Synergy in Action. We referred to it also as a network. And the idea is that when I'm in the Glendale area, the west side of Salt Lake, those of you that know the area between Redwood Road and Ninth West, uh, oh, let's just put it this way, 215 and I-15, Interstate 80 and 201, that little strip right there, what I call the West Side Strip, that little neighborhood, it's actually two neighborhoods, Poplar Grove and Glendale, and 
God has just really put it for me to reach that area because I lived in that neighborhood. And that was there that I wanted to reach out to my friends, my neighbors, to love my neighbor. I, I took that literally, you know, to see what we can do. Now, in our particular area there in Glendale, the neighborhood was changing drastically. We started getting many folks from all different countries, some immigrants, some refugees. It came to the point that we counted 117 different languages that were coming out of that general area. And we were going to meet the challenge and the goal. What could we do to reach those language groups and reach those kids? So as we pursued, through the years, you guys were a big part of helping me reach the neighborhood, especially through our Thanksgiving meal that we would always have at Glendale Middle School. Now, the last two years, we didn't have it. Uh, we did give food away, just more of a drive-by, but we didn't have the meal. We're serving up to a 1,000 people at a sit-down dinner and just welcoming the community, and it was so cool to see. And you guys from the adventure were a big part of that, from a, being able to go to the camps, to share with the kids, and so on. It took us 10 years to do the one center, the Dream Center. And then I felt a call in my heart to leave the church part of that and pursue the outreach side. Because I got so many pastors that were asking, how did you do that? How did you reach out to the kids? How did this happen for you? So my wife and I, our family, decided to pursue more of a mission concept. To be missionaries here in Utah and to go and help our pastors reach their community saying something like this, let me help you build a dream center, but you could call it whatever you want. And we're going to help you in five areas. You could pick just one. Food distribution, clothing distribution, prevention uh, work for kids and youth, intervention work for adults, and then also health. What can we do to get proper health care out to the families in need? Well, you see, all that I just shared with you is in the scriptures in Matthew. Remember where Jesus spoke and in chapter 25, 31 through 41? He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me to drink. Okay, we took that whole dialogue and put it into those five categories. So I said, pastors, what could we do to help you reach? Now, we're already in partnership with you guys. You guys have an awesome program called Jesus Feeds. You guys also do Celebrate Recovery. So that's two out of the five but then you also do all the stuff for kids and youth and so on. So our focus was there's a lot of churches that say, I want to do something. I just don't know how. So by creating a team, our synergy team, to go in and see what we can do. Now, as we were pursuing 2011, 12, and so on, we had one new one every time. Another church, another church, another church. By the time COVID hit, we had... Now, up to 10 churches that we were serving and being a partner with in this network, working together. But when COVID hit and a lot of churches had to shut down and many didn't have a clue what they could do outside them preaching from the pulpit or what they would traditionally do, it got to the place where we exploded as far as this ministry concept. Now we have 36 churches where at one time we were serving hundreds of families food. Right now, all together, we're serving monthly about 15,000 families a box of food or through the pantries. That's evangelical, churches only. That's all of us, my friend. 
I'm not saying what I've done. I'm just thanking you for what you've done to contribute to see that continually grow. Now, but now here's the thing. Pray for me as we're taking a different twist now on what we're going to do with everything. With the multiple churches that we have, we want to take this and even I've got people in other states and even some missionaries and pastors in other countries saying, can you do that here? So we're taking this thing even further. And so I ask you guys for prayer. You see, I really believe when we pursue and do what we can and say, God, here I am, I surrender all to you, then God takes you, your weaknesses and your strengths, and he takes you, and then he starts molding you and shaping you and then putting you in the place you need to be. To the world's eyes, my friend, I'm not impressive. I went to a small Bible college for three years. I'm four classes short of my B.A., and everyone always asked, why don't you just go get your B.A.? I said, nobody in the neighborhood ever asked me if I had a B.A. when I would serve them food. So I was like, I know educators are here like, come on, just go get the B.A. I may do that someday. But here's the thing. When I was in high school, I did graduate. 1.6, baby. Come on. Okay. Hey. I worked hard for that, okay? Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Come on, don't. You're like, yeah, come on. D minus, one plus, you know. When I was in college, I just had one A out of all college. That was in missions. Huh? The one thing was in what I'm doing. But to the world's eyes, uh, you know, it's not all that. I love the scripture that says he uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Because what we're doing and what we're all doing, it's not because of what us and our abilities. It's because we're willing to say, God, use me. God, use me. And to you, God, the glory. To you, you get the credit. To you, God. When people look into my past and they find out that my real dad Ended up becoming a homeless man, run over by a train, amputated leg, smoked so much, cancer in his lungs. My mom divorces him when I'm three. She remarries. She marries a man who's polar opposite of him. He started off as a nicely dressed businessman, but drank so much, beat my mom so much, she left him. Now she marries another guy. This other guy, I'm going to probably explain. This is the 70s. He's got the full beard and the long hair. And I'm going to say he was a combo between a, a cholo and a hippie, you know? And so he, I called him a cheapie because, I mean, seriously, this guy would not spend any, he would not spend any money on my brother and I. He, he always hated that my mom would spend money on us. He made some bad choices. He hated people telling him what to do. That's why he got fired all the time. And so he decided he was going to get involved Really fast, that thought came to him, make fast money. He got involved in organized crime. His idea was to bring money over and drug, um, bring drugs over. I'm sorry, bring drugs for high money. And then he would just get out. But he got caught and he got sent to prison and he was killed there. So now I'm the oldest of five kids living in a one-bedroom house in San Jose, California, and hated being on every government program you could imagine. I hated being poor. 
Because of the loss of my grandpa, died cirrhosis of the liver when I was 13, with my stepdad gone and my real dad gone, and, and, and all this just happening in my life. Actually, I, my real dad gone because I didn't know him. I got involved in the gangs and the drugs in the neighborhood. I lost two of my friends to drive-by shootings and two others to multiple stab wounds. Now, we were all poor. We didn't have money for cocaine and heroin. We did very dumb things. We huffed paint and glue and gas, and it just literally fried my friend's brains and messed me up. So if I'm once in a while, you know what's going on, okay? Keep praying for me. We, li- we did lose some guys to the state mental hospital from all the huffing that they were doing. It was death all around us. All the girls were pregnant by 14 in my neighborhood. There were no dads. All the older brothers are calling the shots, and they were all getting locked up. And it was just one of those things. We didn't know what to do. I had a great idea at 14. At 14, I go, I'm going to find my real dad. I started looking for him. Then I turned 15 in July, that summer of 1980. And I started looking for my real dad. And when nobody would help me. Nobody would even give me an idea of where he was at. They would say things like, you don't want to see him. He's a mess. You don't want to see him. Then I started getting angrier. And it got to the place where I finally was just so frustrated. And someone said to me, look, I'm going to take you. And he took me behind the warehouse building. There was a mattress on the floor. And there was a man laying on that mattress in the homeless area. He was in a pool of vomit, smelled like urine. His hair was matted. You see, fighting was a daily thing. I looked at him, I curled my hand, and I was just ready to clock him because I thought he was being one of those knuckleheads saying stuff like, yeah, that's your dad, or just joking around. Or the other friends would pop out laughing at me. I had a picture in this hand of a guy in a suit and tie. That's what I'm looking for. I've got this emptiness here. I tried the party life. I lost my purity. I did all those things in the street. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Help me. I'm going to find my dad. He's the answer. He shows me this man. He sees that I'm about to hit him. He sees it. He takes the picture out of my hand. He rolls the guy over. He goes, you fool. That's your dad. And I look at him and I realize this is my dad. I know this guy. This is the guy who would walk in front of my house every day across the street. My friends and I used to get rocks and walnuts, and we used to throw them at them. I mean, walnuts in the green casing, those are hard. And we used to throw them. We're trying to make them fall. You see, this is the guy who got so drunk in my neighborhood, he crossed the railroad track, he tripped and passed out, train ran him over, amputated his leg. This homeless man is my dad. I said, if he ever wakes up, tell him I'm looking for him. I got a call a few days later, and it was a nurse in a halfway home, and she says, your dad's looking for you. So I come over. I have one picture with him. He wanted to take it behind the pool table because he didn't want to show that he was missing a leg, but the crutches are right there. You know, I'm, I'm right there. I'm taking this picture with him. I get a phone call a couple of days later saying that he died. 
my life was a mess. I hated life. I hated people because they hated me. I didn't want to go to the school I was bused to. That's when they were rearranging and taking inner city kids and busting them to the suburbs. The people in the suburbs didn't want us. It's, it's hard when you're having to be escorted by police to go to class with um, parents protesting. We don't want them. It was ugly. It was hard. We fought all the time. I didn't want to go to school. As a matter of fact, I quit school. And he got to a place. There was a 65-year-old man that was in church just like this. And the pastor of the church said, we got to get out of the four walls of this place and go into the neighborhood and help them kids because they're killing themselves. The nerve of the man, he listened to the pastor. Who does that? You know, <laughs> sorry, Chase, but who does that? He listened to the pastor. He wasn't an elder, a deacon, a board member. He wasn't anything of position or clout in the church. He was a 65 year old retired man that was in church and God tugged at his heart and that crazy old man came into my neighborhood but he didn't come in with a big sign that said turn or burn okay he came in with a rake and a broom and he started cleaning up wiping graffiti we're like oh man you shouldn't do that bro we used to laugh at him this guy had the ugliest golf pants you ever saw in your life man he did not belong in my neighborhood his pants did not belong in my neighborhood it was just one of those things that was like, who is this guy bringing food to people, fixing fences, screen doors? And after all that was going on in my life, there was a moment there, I just ready to explode like a volcano, and I was ready to erupt on him. And I saw him, and I walked over to him really fast-paced. I wasn't going to hit him, but I was just going to let him know what I thought. And what I thought was this, who do you think you are, huh? You come over here and try to help us poor kids, us colored kids, thinking that you're somebody going back to your rich neighborhood so you can feel good about yourself and tell all your friends, look what you did. You did nothing. I'm screaming, cussing, yelling, making up words. I hated this man for loving us. And then he said to me, after all that, he's only so tall. He looked at me and he goes, you done? I answered him, but yet I didn't answer him. See, some of the older guys in the neighborhood, they actually took their own lives because they said, no one's going to take me out. When I go, it's because well, I'm ready to go. And I'll take myself out. And they kill themselves. The thought came to me. I got to be honest. But when I said, I'm done, I was talking about life. I'm talking about, I'm done. And then he looked at me and he pulled out a $20 bill. I thought he was paying me off to get at it, you know, going to give me money. And he goes, what's the date on that? I said, 1961. He goes, this bill is just a little bit older than you. I was born in 65. He goes, let's say this bill was involved in a bank robbery and drugs and prostitution. Let's say this bill went through all kinds of ugly past. And let's say this bill was under a pile of dog poo for two years and someone found it and rinsed it off. What's the value? 
And I'm like, $20, give it to me. You know, he goes, don't you understand that this bill can change direction? That just one choice changes the direction. I can now, being in my hand, give it to charity. I can bless my family. I can buy groceries. I can do something positive. One decision will change the direction of this bill. And then he said to me something that I had never really heard before. Don't you understand you're more valuable than this bill? Shoot, I'm not used to hearing that. I'm used to hearing you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, and, and, and you know what? You're, you're just like your dad. That's the worst thing you could ever said to me. Which one? They're both losers. Which one? And they would say stuff like that and just get me. Because I didn't want to be like them, but I was working my way to be like them. One decision. It was that crazy old man that led me to the Lord. In my living room, not at an altar or a camp, retreat, seminar, gathering of any kind. In my living room. That crazy old man. Can I tell you right now that there's about a dozen of us from my neighborhood that are all in full-time ministry? Because of some guy that was willing to hear from the Lord and realize his time wasn't up. Retirement, there's no such thing, retirement, when it comes to the kingdom of God. As long as you're breathing, you're going to make an impact on someone's life. And when you're not making that impact to that place where God is saying, okay, I need you here. Let you come and make the impact here. My mom passed away back in October. Some would say to me, well, you know, she fought kidney disease and heart failure, and that's what took her. I said, no, 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 no. My mom loved the Lord, and I knew the Lord loved her, answered her prayers. She loved God. In the moment of her passing, she was literally saying, I see him. I see him. You see, it is appointed for all of us once to die. And once death comes, judgment, our moment to be with the Lord. My friend, kidney disease did not take my mom. The Lord took my mom. It was her time to go home. Kidney disease was the avenue that got her there. But I'm not giving hype and credit to, to kidney disease or heart failure or those should be to COVID, or cancer, or anything. If you're in the Lord, if you're in the Lord, John 10, the Lord says, if you're in my hand, nothing can take you out of my hand. This is what I would tell gang members. There's three ways how to get out of a real gang. Not this wannabe stuff, but real gang. How? One, kill yourself. Yeah, that'll do it. Two, let them kill you. Yeah, that'll do it too. How about three? God. And when you put your life into God's hand, it doesn't matter what death threat from the streets or the military, what accident, what sickness, they said, you should have died. You should have died. Can I ask you here? Please, raise your hand. Have you ever had a situation where you said, I faced death and I should have died? Raise your hand. Okay, why didn't you? You still have a job to do. 
The fact that we all made it these past two years and we're here on this side of it, we all have a job to do. Now, for those of you that are still this way, that way with your walk with God, you're not sure, you're just here because you got pulled by the ear to come. I'm telling you, and you might say, I face death too, but I'm not all that with God. Oh man, that's called God's mercy on you. That's called God's love giving you one more chance. This is what we're talking about. But I'll tell you what, notice how the scripture says, Jesus says, when you're in my hand, implying you could be in someone else's hand. Because he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And you cannot be in your own hand. He says, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but when you try to be lukewarm, you're gone. So if we're not in his hand, we're in the enemy's hand. And if you're in the enemy's hand, he could take you out any time. And he can use it any way he wants to. I'm, it's not even my message yet. I'm just talking. <laughs> can I share something? A lot of you from the way years back. I have my son Isaiah with me. My son is 29 years old. But my son, when he was four years old, was hit with neuroblastoma grade four brain cancer and battled brain cancer for eight years. And multiple times, he should have died in the hospital. Code blue, man, everyone running in. How does he survive? Why is he still here? Because I tell him every day, your job's not done. No, literally, you didn't finish. Go for, you know, <laughs> your, your job's not done. He's my assistant, helps me with ministry. Went to Bible college, graduated. Why are you still here? Why am I still here? After what I just went through, Chase, why are you still here? Our job's not done. We all have a job to do. Now, our ministry has taken off, like I mentioned to you. And we're trying to do what we can to help others. But let me just share with you what happened. When I got sick, I call this living in two worlds. When I got sick, I had just come back from doing a lot of out. We do about eight outreaches every Saturday. And on that Saturday, it was busy. Then on that Sunday, I had to do a wedding at Mill Creek Canyon. Nerve of that couple to do a wedding at Mill Creek Canyon. I'm in a suit. I got to park down here and walk up there. By the time I get there, you know, I'm just like, do you? Yeah, no. Okay, I'm out of here. You know, and so I wasn't feeling well when I got home. And the next day, I was supposed to take kids to camp. And... I go, I can't, I, I'm not doing good. I'm in the recliner. And my wife says, we're going to check your oxygen. And they have that little device, right? That little device. And so it puts it on there. And if it's 95 or above, that says you're healthy. But if it's 90 to 95, it's like, take a, take a deep breath. If you're 80, in the 80s at all, it's like, breathe, dummy. You know, and so I was 72. And the alarm I didn't know it had an alarm. The alarm went off, and it was all dee, 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 dee. I thought, poof, I thought it was going to blow. And she goes, my wife, you're going to the hospital. Now, we live in Ogden, and it's McKinney Hospital. You're going to the hospital. And me being who I am, no, 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 no. Let me just rest it here. Let me just sleep it off. Let me just, you know. And she looked at me, you're going to the hospital. Okay. You know, and so <laughs> go to the hospital. Immediately get there. They put that rope on me, you know, shove that thing up and crank it to 10 liters. 
you know, I felt like a hot air balloon, man. It was just like blowing at me. And I still wasn't getting the oxygen. They go, we got to put a ventilator on him now. And I said, no. He got mad. He goes, if you don't put this on now, you're not going to make it tonight. It was always one of those moments. Long time ago, remember, what would Jesus do? Yeah, I always second that with, what would mom do? You know, my mom, being this tough lady, only five foot, you know, being this tough lady, raising five troubled kids on her own, she was tough. And she would always say to us, you fight for life. No matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're dealing with, you fight, you choose life. I'm in kindergarten. Okay, mommy. Okay. You know, and it was like from here. Yeah. So my mom always, all my life, choose life. So I had two choices. I listened to the guy who's an expert or my fear. Because I had seen on TV, I heard, you put that thing on, you may not get up ever. And I'm like, ah, no, 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 no. So I finally, I said, okay, put it on. I called my family. I didn't say Goodbye, I said, good night. I'll see you in a few days. It's probably going to knock me out. Of course, the family that could be there were right there. I'm calling all my family. I said, good night. Physically, the one side of this two worlds I live in, I was getting worse. I wasn't diabetic when I went in. I became diabetic. My, I pitched a high fever the whole time I was there. It was a total of 45 days in the hospital and 25 days on a ventilator. I lost 40 pounds in one month. I would love to say it was fat, but it wasn't. It was all muscle. And it was weird because when I woke up, they said I was negative zero strength. That means I could lay there, and if I lift my arms and my legs, then I would be zero strength. Then you measure by weight, how much weight you're lifting. I couldn't, it took me a week to lift the remote control to the TV. Where just that weekend before I got in the hospital, I was unloading pallets of food, 50-pound bags of potatoes and onions, and throwing them into a truck, and from a truck out. And it was just no problem. But now I can't even lift the remotes. I asked them, did you put sand in this pillow? Nope, just feathers. Feels like sand. You know, it's just, I couldn't lift the pillow. I lost all strength. I had to go on a forced sabbatical. September 15th, I came out, and I couldn't do anything. They did not want me to do anything because of my heart and because of my, my lungs. They said my immune system was like twofold. This side was like sharpshooters, and it went after COVID. Boom, got it on day four. I wasn't battling COVID. This side of my immune system was like a tank brigade. And it went through and started cleaning up everything. What it triggered in me was an autoimmune aggressive. It was going after, I was going after my own body, my muscles, my immune system was going after my muscles, my heart and my lungs. That's why I was on so much longer. And I was getting worse. And the medicine, my wife says, the medicine, it was like, if they took, gave you too much of this, it shuts your kidney down. If they do too much of this, it affects your liver. And this is going to affect your heart. And they got, it's a balancing act. And so all of you were praying 
for my friend, for me and many others. You know, losing 40 pounds in one month is not the way to do it when you lose all your strength. But going through the holidays, I gained all that weight back. But it wasn't muscle because I couldn't work out. It was fat on fat. Now imagine that. Okay, let me give you a picture to imagine that. You ever seen those inflatable things that you put out in the corner to draw attention? <laughs> if you don't have muscle, you don't have balance. And I'm, why do you think I've been holding on to this thing this whole time? It wasn't until a month or so ago that I got permission to go to the gym. It's intimidating when you're in the gym with all them young bloods, 45 pounds, and, and I'm there with the bar, you know, little five pounders, you know. I'm trying, but I got to let you know, I lost 31 pounds of fat. Come on. 31. I gained 11 pounds of muscle. Yeah, so 20 pounds total. I went into the hospital at 320 plus. 325 was my most. Most of you have always that have known me through the years, I've always been over 300 pounds. Okay, I've always been over 300 pounds. But a lot of people look, you don't look 300. I've always been over 300 pounds. So I lost 20 pounds. Can I tell you right now? 299, baby. 299. Okay. I was all excited about, hey, I worked hard for those 300 pounds, you know? Every meal I enjoyed. But now at my age, and now going through what I went through, this is hard. So I'm trying. I'm trying. Now, here's the thing. The director from the hospital asked me if I can go and encourage the doctors. They were very discouraged from all the death. They said, Alfred, if you just would have got, if you just would have got um, COVID, you would have had a 50% chance of survival. But because you had Delta, it was a 25% chance of survival. As a matter of fact, there's only two of you that survived. And we're asking both of you to come back and talk to the doctors. And this guy, he was worse off than I was. Younger than me, but just worse off. And he went. We had an hour. I thought there'd be 10 people there. The director thought 20 people. There were 80 doctors and nurses there. And this guy goes up first, and he goes and he says his thank yous, and he's done in 10 minutes. We had an hour. I'm like, really? Okay. Okay. And I know you say, well, you could talk. I go, I can. I always tell everybody I'm a tacoholic and a tacoholic, you know, <laughs> tacos later, you know, you know. And so it was just to that place here. They gave it back to me. And I ask, how limited am I? They go, you got 45 minutes and you can share whatever you want. This is not a sanctioned meeting. Doctors, surgeons, nurses, aides, people all there on Zoom as well. And I go up there and they said, this is not a, you can say whatever you want. I went like this, thank you. Because I wanted to say thank you to the doctors. I didn't know how. What do I get them, donuts? You know, what do I do? Thank you. So I said this to them. I believe I'm made of body, soul, and spirit. My spirit is being cared for because there are so many people praying for me and for you. My soul is my heart, my family, my friends, and they're there for me. But my body, that's where you come in. You've done an amazing job, and we both are here to say thank you. But I've been here a long time, and some of you have become so close that you've been become friends. 
like family. And some of you have actually said to me, you're praying for me. Who does that? But awesome people like you bring healing holistically. Well, by that point, we're all crying. And my job was to cheer them up, you know. (laughs) So I said some things, made them laugh. And then, you know what? After that hour was done, they let me pray for them. From that moment on, Chase invited me to speak at winter camp, and I've been speaking ever since, sharing what I'm sharing with you. Believing, believing, my friend, my job's not done. And to say to you, neither is yours. Now, I want to take you to the other world that I dealt with. And as I, I need to share this, I found out just recently, because I'm going to start coughing. Hold on. Usually that's telling me, okay, shut up. You're done. But I'm going to fight it through. Um, They told me that when they removed the ventilator, it cut my vocal cord on the left side. And that's what's still healing right now. So if you're still praying for me, I ask you to pray. That God would help me. Now, here's the thing. I was told for every day, two to three days, you're in the hospital. It takes one month to recover. I was in 45 days. So it's been over a year. If that equation's correct, I still have about another six more months. (coughs) People tell me all the time, you shouldn't talk. Don't talk, just let it heal. I said, I'm done being quiet. I don't care about coughing if you don't. Because I know in the world we live in, as soon as you hear a cough, you're like, <gasps> you know. <laughs> so I got to tell you, I'm not sick. It's just my throat is all messed up. Psalms 41, verses 1 through 4, is the first verses of Scripture that was brought to me when I was sick. Can we put it up on the screen? Psalms 41, uh, verses 1 through 4. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it from here. Are they be able to see it up here? Here we go. Uh, go... Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. He gives them prosperity in the land and rescues them from their enemies. The Lord nurses them when they are sick and restores them to health. And then I said, Oh Lord, I prayed, have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. I'm going to take you to the other world that I live in. I lived in and I still live in. The physical world is what I told you, where I'm at and what I'm dealing with. But when they put me on high doses of fentanyl to knock me out because they said it's going to be so painful having a ventilator. If you're familiar with fentanyl, it's more potent than heroin and and addictive. And with that, 
they put me under and they said, oh, by the way, you're going to have a lot of nightmares and hallucinations. And so I go under. This is the other world. Most of us forget our dreams when we wake up the next morning. I remember every part of the dream. Every part. Every part. It's crazy. I still relive it every day, what I'm seeing and what I'm dealing with. When I went under and I woke up in my eyes like this, immediately I saw a friend of mine. His name is Charlie. Charlie got hit with COVID and he was in the hospital. Close to the family, friends, I would teach a Bible study and he had the class next to me. I actually performed his kid's wedding. That's how close we were. And it was one of those things where Charlie's in the hospital and we're all praying for him. But in my dream, Charlie's in my dream. First person I see. And I look over to him and I said, Charlie. And he just says to me, keep running. Keep going. Don't stop. It was like he was passing a baton to me. And then just like a dream, he faded away. Now I got to jump to that part. When I woke up and I had that ventilator in me, I can only talk like this. And one of the first things, my wife wrote everything down. And one of the first things I said, how's Charlie? And she teared up and she goes, Charlie died the day that you went in. I'm like, no, I saw him in my dreams. He talked to me. No, Alfred, he died the day you went in. He died. I said, I saw him. He said to keep running. After he faded away, I'm looking at the screen now. You see that last verse that's up, uh, verse four. Oh Lord, I pray to have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. The first three verses were promises that the psalmist was repeating back to God. You see, I personally don't like it when people say to me, well, you said, like my kids all the time, you said, oh, but God loves it when we say back to him, you said, because it says you learned his word. And the psalmist then wrote, forgive me. I'm now going to show you something. I'm looking at the screen as though I'm looking at the Lord in my dream. I'm going to put this down. I'll speak as loud as I can. As I'm looking at the screen, I want you to see my hands. My hands back here, I can't see them. I can see them right now, both sides. I'm not looking at them. I'm focused on the screen as I was focusing on the Lord. But everything from here to here, here to here is called peripheral vision. I could see all of you standing up, moving. I could see every movement, but I'm not staring at you. Basically, if I am in the Lord and I stay focused on the Lord, no matter what is happening in the peripheral, I can handle it. He'll never give me anything I can't handle. But if I take my focus off of the Lord, and let's say to that green exit sign, and look at what happens to my peripheral. Now I'm going back to the things that were, and I'm now missing out what possibly could be blessings in my life. Because now the Lord's in my peripheral. And I'm looking over here. As I was talking to the Lord, the Lord said to me, 
the Lord said to me, don't look at him. Don't look at him. Immediately, I saw someone walking right to me, right here, walking right to me in my peripheral. He's walking. And the Lord says, don't stare at him. Don't talk to him. Don't look at him. But me being who I am, knucklehead, I had this conversation with him. God, please, Jesus, let me do it. Let me do it. I know I could do it. I have your scripture. I have your name. I know I could do this. Lord, please. And it was to that place where I then would take my view off of the Lord and I went to the enemy and I battled the enemy and I battled the enemy. It was day and night, day and night. You ever seen Groundhog Day? Right? That's what I lived day and night, day and night. And my life was threatened every single time. One day, nine times, my life was threatened as I battled. But every night, I'd go back to the Lord. Because I know the scriptures. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And every night I was there, oh God, please help me. And he did. I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up. I could do this. God, believe me. Okay, bring it on. And then, oh God, help me, Lord. Day and night, until the 19th. Let me jump up to the physical world again. I got so bad physically, but on the 19th was my wife's birthday. That just happened here. On the 19th, she gets a phone call saying that I was getting worse and that they were going to do a tracheotomy on me. And they said, now, okay, they said, he's, he's getting really bad. God put it on one of the pastor's hearts that lives the closest to the hospital, put it on his heart saying, Anna, told, call my wife. I think God wants me to pray for him. They said, they won't let you in. They're not letting anybody in because of COVID. But I, I believe I got to pray for him. Meet me there. They go to the hospital. They explain. They let him come through. The only reason I think they let him in was because it was last rites. They said I was going fast and I wasn't going to make it. They let him come in. He's here. She's there. I'm laying here. I'm tied to the bed because they were afraid I'd wake up and pull that out. The whole month, I was tied to the bed. I was bound. The doctors are in there, and he goes, okay, I'm going to pray. And he said to Anna, I'm not going to pray like I normally would. The prayer would have been, Lord, please help him, heal him, you know, set him free, help him, whatever. He goes, I'm not going to pray like that. Well, by that point, the doctors all left, out of respect, so he could pray. And he goes, he goes, I'm speaking to your spirit, man, Alfred. In the name of Jesus, live. And immediately my body started shaking. I didn't know this. This is what they told me. It started shaking so violently that literally the doctors all ran in because all the alarms went off. And they all ran in. And he finished his prayer. Within that hour, my fever, for the first time in a long time, was going down fast. It was 10 days later that they literally took the ventilator out of me. And I started getting better. Not only because it's my wife's birthday on August 19th, but literally that's the day I was born again again. (laughs) I celebrated my one year birthday. And hear me. That was the physical realm and I shared with you all that happened then. Let's go back to what happened. After so much battle day and night, I believe, and I'll say for this reason, I believe it was the 19th of August, that I was in a cul-de-sac, a dead end, 
And the enemy once again is coming. I see that man walking. I see the demonic. I see it all happening. And I'm like this. And I don't know if any of you can relate to me. I know my time has passed. I'm trying to make this really fast. Bear with me. I got permission, Chase. Okay, okay. I heard the Lord. Yes, Lord. Okay, you know. No, listen, hear me. I said, I can't do this no more. I'm done. I'm tired. I hate this. I hate this battle. I quit. I'm talking to the Lord. And the enemy's coming closer. And I'm at a dead end. And I'm tired. But in my peripheral over here, I don't see them directly, but I see them coming. Two guys on horses, fast, galloping fast. The one in front has a rifle and shooting the enemy. The one behind them has pistols, shooting the enemy. And they're going fast. Now, this is what I said in my dream. I grew up watching cowboy movies with my grandpa. And I immediately said in my dream, that looks like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. You know, I, I know. Hey, I know. Hey, dreams. Yeah, you know. And they came closer, and I realized it wasn't John Wayne. But if you've ever seen True Grit, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. But they're right there. The guy that was on the horse was the pastor that was praying for me. And he had his son with him. And then they, the son goes, they're getting away for those that they missed. And then we chase them. And then I'm back to the Lord. And the Lord said to me again, what did he say? Don't, don't look at him. What did he say? Don't, don't look at him. Why would he tell me anything different if I don't pay attention to the first thing he said? Don't look at him. But see, this time it was different. If you remember anything about this morning, remember what I'm going to tell you right now. Very important. That the Holy Spirit is faster than Google. Okay, just remember that. The Bible says when you put the word of God in you, he will bring it back to remembrance when it's needed in its time. Now hear me, hear me. The enemy is coming, walking like he did every single day. And now I see him coming. The, end, the demonic are gone. It's the enemy walking right back up. But Genesis chapter four pops into my head. The story of Cain and Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, because his offering was rejected. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face showing me you're angry? If you'd only choose to do right, you'd be accepted. But because you choose to do wrong, sin is at your door and desires you, but you must master it. In my mind, I said, master what? I'm going to tell you. He reads minds. And he answered me. And he said, fix your eyes on me. Basically, he was saying, if there's anything you're going to master in life, Alfred, anything you're going to master in life, master to keep your eyes fixed on me. Why do they use the word fixed? Because our eyes are broke. Our eyes wander always. Now notice, it doesn't say fix your nose on me, fix your chin on me, fix your forehead on me, because all those could be pointing the direction and I look religious but look at my eyes. <laughs> and it's within the eyes that your peripheral changes. It's not in the, I could look, you know, like a lot of you now, 
but your mind is somewhere else. Like, when's he going to shut up? He coughed. Okay, here we go. He said to me, he said, resist him and he will flee. Now, I know a lot of you guys, a lot of you are perfect angels, maybe all of you, perfect angel saints. And you look like those old portraits of the saints of God. They look like this. You know what I'm talking about? Butterflies and rainbows and glowy things behind you. That's not how I looked. Fix your eyes on me. This was me. Oh, oh, because I wanted to do it my own way. He said, fix your eyes on me and he'll leave. Oh, and he left. Now the Lord's looking at me and it's just me and him. And he goes on to the second thing he says. And he says this, stop looking at my hands. Stop looking at my hands. Me being defensive. But Lord, every time I come to you, I'm not praying for me. I'm praying for all these pastors and churches and that family and this ministry. He goes, I didn't say don't come to me, he says. I said, when you come to me, stop looking at my hands. Second Chronicles 7.14 pops in my head. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked way, and seek my face. Basically, what he's saying to me is that our relationship lately, Alfred, has been you just talking to me because you want something, even if it's not for me. He said it this way. Stop looking at your hands to see what you could do without me. And stop looking at Chase's hands before you come to me to see what he could do for you. And when you finally decide... To come to me, stop looking at my hands. I thought, I thought I was going to get those words we all want to hear. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Come on in. I didn't hear that. Being Latino, I would have even taken, good job, mijo. Come on, you know. I would have taken that. No. It was a rebuke. I'm ending with this. My friends, it came to the point that he said to me, because I want to know you. I did not want to hear that. I did not want to hear that. That's not something you want to hear as a child of God, for the Lord to say, I want to know you. What he said to me, this isn't new doctrine. Listen, you knowing me benefits you on earth. Me knowing you gets you in here. I was like, huh? He goes, I want to know you. I know where that's found in scripture. Lord, Lord, let us in. But we did this in your name and we did that in your name. And we were in church every time the door was open and we gave tithing and we helped that kid go to camp. Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, you evil person. I don't even know you. I didn't want to be put in that category. So I fell on my knees and it says, I ask you, forgive me because I've sinned. And then immediately, come on up, brother. Immediately, an old man came into my memory, an old preacher from chapel days in Bible college 40 years ago. 
And this old man walks up to the podium like this. He looks out to everybody and he says, my sin, I was too busy for him. I didn't have enough time for him. God bless you. And walked off. Talk about an altar call, man. We all just like, oh, God. Oh, God. He goes, Alfred, all those things that you're chasing and trying, fundraising and trying to get this and try to get that, the cares of this world, your budgeting, finances, your bills, you spend more time dealing with all that than you're dealing with me. I know you're praying for all the other people, but talk to me. If you spent more time with me, all that stuff will follow you. Stop chasing it. Stop trying to, is it wrong to budget? No. Fundraise? No. But when we put more of our care on the pressures of this world and the issues and the fear and all this and our little, thank you, Jesus, for this meal. I've been totally different this year. I thank you so much. I know I went way, way over. Chase said, take as long. Blame him. Listen, I fell on my knees in my dream and I said, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. And when I opened my eyes in my dream to look at him again, I was literally opening my eyes in the hospital and my wife screamed, he's alive. I've not been the same since. And I know what this man has gone through is not the same guy. We still have a job to do, but now we're saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine. What you got going. We're all here for a purpose, my friend. Our day will come. The Lord is going to say, come home. That day will come. But until then, even like that 65-year-old man thought he was done. As long as you're breathing, you're not done. God has a plan for you to use you to be the influence that you are. Would you stand with me, please? Chase, could I say a word of prayer? And I'll invite you to come. Lord, so much was said, so much was done this morning. Lord, I know that all that I shared was what you told me. And if anything relates to anyone here, that's between you and them. And I pray, God, for them. Lord, that each one of us, God, would stay fixed on you. Our eyes fixed on you. If there's anything we're going to master, Lord, it's just loving you more. Thank you. Thank you for second chances and third and fourth and fifth. Thank you for who you are in our lives. You said you love us and you've proven that over and over. So all we do now is lay our life before you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Alfred. It's funny, the story I was thinking of when he was sharing is that of uh, Peter when he was asked to step out of the boat. And when he stepped out of the boat and he has his eyes on Christ, what happened? He walked on water. How incredible is that? But it says as soon as he started to, to see and take his eyes off Christ and notice everything around him, boom, sank. And so I think that's so powerful for us to, to hear what he said this morning and keep our eyes on, on Jesus Christ, right? So thank you again, guys, for being here.
Thank you for for being a part of the service this morning. We want to bless you as you head out. And uh, God bless you today. Amen. You guys can go. Thank you.